Hey, good morning, friends. Will you say uh, a big thank you to Michelle and also uh, to Josiah for leading us this morning? Appreciate your vulnerability and um, you sharing there, Michelle, and appreciate you, Josiah. For for those who um, don't know, um, it's special to share the stage with Josiah. We've been doing that since I was trying to do the math, and my math is terrible, you know, but um, I think Josiah was 14, probably the first time he led worship, uh, and I was probably 24, 25. I think there's about 10 years between us, maybe something like that. Um, so that's really fun. Um, boy, what a long way you've come. Um, I mean, I haven't done my thing yet, so I guess we'll find out. Um, one week away. Man, one week away, uh, one week from right now, I hope you'll be joining me in this very room for our Christmas Eve gathering. A very different sort of experience than what we normally do in this place, and yet beautiful, the liturgy we practice each Christmas Eve is really wonderful, candle lighting and, and singing songs. But as I was thinking about it throughout this week, and especially early this morning, thinking, oh my goodness, it's one week away, and I don't know about you, but my mind immediately went early this morning to the things that I need to get done in the next week. I got kids coming back to town. I got a mother flying in. I've got a gift I forgot to send that I need to get in the mail. You know, and I just, all the preparations for Christmas began to sort of wash over me. And I suspect you've got preparations yet to do as well. But I would like to pause in these moments together this morning and propose to us and also maybe give a map for a roadmap of sorts for how we might do our own final preparations for Christmas. Uh, like I said, I don't know what you have left to do before your Christmas comes, but I bet you need to run to the grocery store at least once, or if you're anything like me, uh, once a day for the next six days. You probably have a stocking stuffer or something yet to purchase. You might even be one of the many in our community of faith who have ongoing grief to walk through in the week ahead that you know you're preparing for. You're looking at Christmas morning and knowing what that day will mean. The first day without a parent, the first day without a child, the first Christmas since fill in your own personal blank. And we just hold kind of a holy space knowing that the Spirit is in all of that. And those preparations matter uh, as much, if not more, than whether you get the multicolored candy canes in the stockings. I really believe that the preparations that we make in our hearts in the week ahead will go a long way that if we lean into those preparations with a, a level of earnestness, we'll be prepared really well for Christmas to experience the goodness of God and the incarnation of Jesus beyond the gifts, which are all wonderful, beyond the meals, which are lovely too. Let's do some final preparations this morning, if you would. Uh, bow with me and pray. Lord Jesus. I just echo what I think you're stirring in us as a people this morning, God. Would you prepare us for what lies ahead on Christmas? For the realities that this kingdom we live into presents us with. We pray even in these moments that we would be catalyzed for some of the preparation you want to do. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
If you haven't already, capture the QR code behind me, and that'll lead you to, to today's digital program and uh, today's text, which we pick up in Luke chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think of what the angel could possibly mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus, and he will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, but how, how can this happen? I am a virgin. And the angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age, exclamation point. People used to say she was barren, but she has conceived the son and is now in her sixth month, for the word of God will never fail. Some other manuscripts and translations say, for with God, all things are possible. Mary responded, I'm in verse 38. Mary responded, I, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then the angel left her. A few days later, Mary hurried to the hill country of Judea to the town where Zechariah lived. And she entered the house and greeted Elizabeth. At the sound of Mary's greeting, Elizabeth's child leaped within her. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And Elizabeth gave a glad cry and exclaimed to Mary, God has blessed you above all women and your child is blessed. Why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should visit me? When I heard your greeting, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. You are blessed because you believed that the Lord would do what he said. You are blessed because you believed that the Lord would do what he said. Uh, we, we dive right into these preparations, and there's two kind of key preparations that I think are um, so helpful to us in our followership of Jesus in the week ahead and in our preparation for Christmas. And we're reminded yet again that God's presence with his people was then in ancient far Israel and is today the cornerstone and the key differentiating factor of the Christian faith. That our God, Emmanuel, is with us. God with us. He incarnated himself and he lived among us. It's so central to the way that we ascribe our lives to as we follow Jesus. 
And we see right out the gate here this really interesting kind of crossing of life paths, if you can kind of see it that way. You have Zechariah, the priest, who earlier on in the story, I really encourage you to read all of Luke chapter 1 sometime this week. It'll, it'll be a gift to you. But Zechariah, the priest, who's away kind of doing priestly duties for the week, he had kind of drawn his lot, and, and his... his road sort of intersects with Joseph and Mary and their story. And not only is the reality that Emmanuel, God with us, Christ is with us and Mary will have a child. Yes, and that's beautiful. But there's also sort of this nuance going on that God is doing as just like it seems a lavish and extravagant gift that he's allowing Elizabeth and Mary to sort of experience these miraculous pregnancies together. What an amazing gift. Elizabeth and Mary share the journey of a miracle. I don't know precisely in each of us, though I have some knowledge of many of us, the the road we've walked over the last year. The highs, the lows, the grief, the joy, the victory, the defeat. And I bet if we were to rewrite the story of our last year, and sometimes it might be easier and, and more clarity comes if we were to rewrite the last 10 years of our story, and to see the ways in which God has intersected the miracles of our life with others. And that goes for grief as well. That there are moments and times in our life where we go, man, I don't know how I would have gotten through that had God not intersected my story with that person's story. And that kind of kept us going together. And we see this kind of almost DNA strand of the kingdom of God working in and out of itself. But this isn't all that Elizabeth shares with Mary. She also shares a rich and wise truth with her that I emphasize somewhat heavily and will end with today, that you are blessed, she says to Mary, because you believed that the Lord would do what he said. There's a number of ways I think we can approach the statement, all of which I think can serve us well in our final preparations for Christmas. There's a whole bunch of roads worth exploring here, most of which we probably don't have time for in these minutes, but I'll tease you a little bit, maybe plant a few seeds that maybe just maybe the Spirit wants to use in you as you study to unite with Him more greatly. First, look at the similarities and the one key difference in Zechariah's response to his wife's miracle and Mary's response. We didn't read that portion of the text, but if we're to go back, we'll see in verse 18 that the angel comes to Zechariah first and says, your wife's going to have a baby. Well, he's on priestly duties, and Zechariah has this conversation, and in the midst of that conversation, he says, how can I be sure? How can I be sure? And I don't know all the reasons for this, friends. And I, and I wouldn't um, presume to know all the reasons for this. But I, but I know this much, that this, this is really, really key. Because in just a few verses later, in verse 34, when Mary finds out she's carrying a child, 
Her words to the angel are, but how can this happen? For I'm a virgin. Zechariah's response is, how can I be sure? And Mary's response is, how can this happen? And I'm sure some stuff gets lost in translation, and I'm not a translation expert, but I'm sure there's some nuance there and some other things. But, but here's the critical piece to that, is Zechariah says, how can I be sure? And the angel says, your mouth will now be shut for the next six months. You're going to be a mute. Well, actually, like nine months, however long it took. We don't know exactly where that is in the story of how far along Elizabeth's pregnancy is, but it's at least six months because Mary hasn't arrived yet. And the angel shuts the mouth of Zechariah and says, you won't speak again till the baby is born. Because you didn't believe. How can I be sure? We juxtapose that against what's going on with Mary and Mary's response is, how can that happen? I'm a virgin. And the angel says, blessed are you. you. You get this great, great gift. And we could do some trite things here and some silliness um, that would maybe get a laugh or wash it away or write it off to simple language barrier. But I think this is critical, friends, and I think it's crucial. And I think it's important. And I think it's worth paying attention to. Because sometimes in the preparation for God's presence, whether that's God's presence on a Sunday or God's presence when we open his scriptures on a daily basis to say, I want to I dive in, or, or whether it's in, in the midst of chaos or at a homeless shelter, wherever it might be, in our preparation for the incarnation of God himself, there are times where we approach God and say, God, I will approach you as long as I can be sure. Instead of Mary's curiosity and wonder, how can this be? I'm a virgin. You're blessed because you believed. I think that would be helpful to some of us to hunt that down and chase that down. And you may be going, okay, give me a conclusion. I don't, I don't actually have one for you. I just think it's really important. I think those two juxtapositioned texts are there for a reason. And I think it'll probably serve you really well to dive in. Second, look at both women's responses to the news of their miracle. Elizabeth goes into seclusion. Verse 24, it says, tells us that it lasted five months that she goes into seclusion. And it's important, I believe, also to mention that during this seclusion, as we've mentioned already, her husband can't speak. And she's been muted. So like Elizabeth's seclusion for those five months that she enters is a kind of special seclusion because she can't even talk to her. Well, I guess she can talk to her husband, but he can't talk back to her. Wives, how great would that be, right? If you could just say stuff to us and we wouldn't talk back. But the motivation... Well, let me back up before we get to motivations because in verse 56... Mary also goes into a seclusion of sorts, staying away from her own home for three months. So again, we have this, this other kind of paralleling or intersecting path among these two family households who are experiencing these miraculous pregnancies. And both of these women carrying these miracle babies of sorts, not, not to say that those are equal miracles, I think kind of the birth of Jesus is maybe a bigger deal than anything else, but 
she goes away in seclusion for three months as well. And it's, it's difficult for me, it's probably impossible for me to imagine why a pregnant woman would go away in seclusion because I've obviously never carried a baby. And so maybe I'm the worst one to be up here to give this talk, and we should have had one of our brilliant women in the church come give this talk, but here you have it. It's me. So I leave you just with another thing that I think is worth exploring. Because I think uh, maybe there are others who can identify better with this seclusion. But if you've ever carried that miracle, um, and God forbid, if you're one of the many, I know there are many of you in this room, many who I know and some probably I don't know, who've carried that miracle and lost that baby. That temptation to go away into seclusion when you find out you're pregnant and tell nobody for a while till you, till what? Till you know everything's okay is a pretty powerful force. I've had conversations with a few of you um, who said, you know, at some point, hey, Stu, we're, we're pregnant. I'm pregnant and so excited. Oh my goodness, how far along are you? Well, 12 weeks. Oh my goodness, I can't even tell, you know, which even if you can tell, that's what you say. And invariably, I get some version of a response, not always the same. I don't want to paint everybody with the same brush, but I get some response of some version of, yeah, we wanted to wait until we, we knew everything was okay. We wanted to get through the whatever, second sono or third, or whatever the, the magic number is in your head before we, we knew it was okay. Before what? Before we were sure, or at least reasonably sure. And, and much of that is conjecture, but there is this kind of sense that these women go away in seclusion. There's a preparation for their own hearts, their own bodies, their own minds and souls for what will come. But there's something about the preparation of everybody in this story that was designed to prepare them for what was coming ahead. And so I guess I... I tie a few of those strings together just to offer you the question of in what ways in the week ahead, you only get one week left. I only get, we only all get one week left before Christmas. In what ways and in what spaces and places of your life do you know right now you need some seclusion in the next week? You need to go away in quiet and prepare for what's ahead. Maybe you're stressing the money at Christmas. Maybe you're stressing an interaction with a family member who's difficult for you at Christmas. Maybe you're, maybe you're just overflowing with joy about God's blessing as you walk into your home. What, whatever that might be, would you give yourself the gift of some seclusion this week? To go away, to hear from God, to connect, to, to write a poem of your own like the one that Michelle wrote and read today. You are blessed because you believed that the Lord would do what he said. Let's pick up the story uh, with verse 45 yet again. Jump in there with me. You're, you are blessed, Elizabeth says to Mary. You because you believe that the Lord would do what he said. And Mary responded, verse 46, Oh, how my soul praises the Lord, how my spirit 
rejoices in God, my Savior. For he took notice of his lowly servant girl. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one is holy and he's done great things for me. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and haughty ones. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. He's helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful for he made this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. And then verse 56, Mary stayed with Elizabeth about three months and then went back to her own home. Now for Mary, this is like a profound and very personal overflowing of joy in terms of what she's experiencing. There's just no possible way any of us can wrap our heads around all that Mary must be feeling, carrying the knowledge that she holds the Messiah in her. And so she writes this overflowing joy And a young woman, having been raised on the Psalms, she would have heard the Psalms recited over and over and over again by rabbis when they gathered, probably by her parents when they had meals, when they would ascend to Jerusalem for Passover. She would recite these Psalms of ascent and she knew these Psalms. And so she sits down, In the overflow of joy, like this is the greatest ascent of her life. And and so it stands to reason or it is reasonable that she would sit down and say, I got to write my own psalm. Almost as if to say, the psalms are incomplete for me right now. I got to write my own song to God. And so she does and she writes it. But we're given kind of a special gift in this, obviously, in that we have the gift of time past. We not only have the time that has passed of Mary and her life and the raising of Jesus, but we also fast forward beyond that. We have the life and the teaching and the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. And so we hold this narrative in a different sort of tension or in a a different sort of theater of our heads and our hearts, which gives us kind of the gift to extract some meanings that as deep as these meanings would have been for Mary, maybe we even get a greater gift because we have the gift of time. I I don't know if it hit for you, and uh, one would certainly be forgiven if it did not hit for you this way, but as I read this over and over and over again in preparation over the last month for this talk in our series, as more time passed and as I read it more times, I began to think, man, this feels really reminiscent of another really famous writing. So reminiscent of another text in Scripture. Verse 48 says, For he took notice of his lowly servant girl, and from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Then we fast forward to 
the Sermon on the Mount of Jesus' teaching of the Beatitudes. And, and look with me here at, you have Mary's song on the left there in verse 48. He took notice of a lowly servant girl. And on the right, we have the words of Christ himself. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for them. You have verse 50 on the left of Mary's song. He shows mercy from generation to generation. And on the right, we have verse 7, Jesus himself in the Beatitudes. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. On the left, we get, he has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. And on the right, we get the teaching of Jesus himself of Matthew 5, 5, God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. And, and finally, uh, by way of example, it's not the last of the overlapping, but by way of example, finally, verse 53 of Mary's song, he's filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. And the words of Jesus on the right are, God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice for they will be satisfied. The parallels are lovely and they're fun. And, and for any of you who've studied the scriptures for many years, you, you may nerd out every now and again on the parallels and the various prophetic statements. And, and that's well and good and that's fine and beautiful. And we ought to treat this literature as the sacred text that it is. But I think that there's more going on here than simply trying to align a few words that may slightly overlap, which is would be a silly, trivial thing to do. It might just win you a point at pub trivia. And even kind of the poetic personification of a life changed in Mary, of having Christ in her, which of course Mary demonstrates First and beautifully and is now passed on to us, we too are changed forever by carrying Christ in us, right? But I think that there's even something more or, or additional at least to all of this going on. Because in the Beatitudes, Jesus goes on to leave us with one last stanza of sort of the poem he lays out in Matthew 5 before he continues to preach for a very long time, all the way in through Matthew chapter 7. And that last stanza, I, I want to encourage you to go there now. Matthew chapter 5, if you're using the digital, it's right there for you already. Because Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, ends this little kind of poem section that Jesus has done, and he says, God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. And then he goes on to do something unique that he hasn't yet done in the Sermon on the Mount, but that he will do a lot more in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. And then he says this really interesting thing, be happy about it. Be very glad for a great, reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets also were persecuted. You see, if the first piece 
of the preparations I think this text gifts us with today is this preparation that the miracle you're living right now is shared with another and we ought celebrate that. That just as the, the triune nature of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a shared experience and the Israel is a shared experience and the prophets are inviting Israel into a shared experience and the disciples live a shared experience. Elizabeth and Mary and you and me live a shared experience. And this was part of the preparation for Christmas because if for no other reason, though there are many, if for no other reason there are things about Christmas and the Christ of Christmas that you get that I never will if you don't tell me about it. And there may be things that the person next to you or across the room for you understands about Christmas because of their life experience and their victories and their grief and their wins and their losses that will continue to form the full picture of the beauty of the incarnation of Jesus. I will never go a Christmas as long as I live without remembering the Christmas Eve where my single mother, raising three kids by herself, brought us home from Christmas Eve service after having told us there will be no Christmas gifts this year because she was broke and didn't have any. And she said, so tomorrow we're going to go to the rescue mission and we're going to serve Christmas dinner at the Reading Rescue Mission and we're going to just be grateful we have a home and we have the gift of each other. And, and that was the Christmas we were preparing for, coming home to kind of a cold, dark house at Christmas. And we arrived at our house and there were piles of wrapped gifts on our porch because a bunch of families at church had found out what was going on and had bought us all these gifts. I will never go a Christmas without that in my mind, without the beauty of God's generosity, our lavish. We didn't need whatever it is. I don't even remember a single one of those gifts. Because that wasn't the point, right? Like, we didn't need any of those toys or any of those clothes or whatever else was left on that. What we were reminded was where we were living a miracle that had intersected with the miracle of someone else. And the second piece of this preparation is the reminder that we get that would come to very much fruition in Mary and Joseph's life as they have to now live life on a run for the next quite a while. And the reminder of Jesus in Matthew 5.10 that carrying Christ in us will come at a very happy cost. What a weird sentence to write. <laughs> what a weird sentence to read. That carrying Christ in us comes at a very happy cost. Countless dear friends of mine who are atheists will tell me they concluded atheism was the only logical place they could live because at least in atheism, they did not have to explain why good things happen to bad people. That if there just is no God, then it's all just randomized and I can, they say I can live my life in that world. Now, I, I disagree with them and I, and I find great joy in those conversations because part of the beauty of carrying Christ with us is knowing that it will come at a cost. That 
that in, in following the Jesus way, we recognize there will be questions left unanswered. There will be things we're just not sure of. There will be Zechariah moments where we go, I have no idea what you're doing here, God. And following the Jesus way doesn't leave us the simple out to say, well, you know, Jesus just took his hand off of that and just gave up and quit. No, Jesus is in it. He's with us and he's in us. I doubt very much that any of us will ever be mocked or persecuted or lied about for following Jesus this Christmas morning. However, like Mary, the cost of carrying Jesus is a real cost. I think it's a preparation we should make way for in the next seven days. That this cost of following Jesus does come at a cost, but it's a happy cost. We're wise to prepare now to be happy about it. <laughs> We're wise to prepare now because you see that the days of declaring war on the oppressor are over in Christ. You know, well, what will be my happy cost for following Jesus? Well, I'll say at least one of them that we get in the Beatitudes and that we, we get framed in from Mary's song is the cost of following Jesus is when someone oppresses me, I don't get to declare war on them anymore right? This is a cost of Christianity. You tried to hurt me, I'll bury you. You tried to hurt my business, I will end your business. You try to say something bad about me, I'll say 17 bad things about you. That is a cost in the life of Christ that we leave behind. The days of the powerful being the respected voice in our lives are over when we follow Jesus. A new day is dawning, and we're wise to prepare for that new day. A new day right out of the Beatitudes that tells us that a new day is coming when mercy will give birth to mercy. A new day when realizing how needy we are for Jesus will be the greatest gift we can give away. A new day when humility is now the path to all inheritance at least inheritance that matters. A new day when true satisfaction in life comes when we experience justice and righteousness. And lastly, a new day when seeing God is the result of a pure heart. You, my friends, says Jesus himself, are the salt of the earth. You're the flavor and you're the preservative for this world. You, we, friends, are the light of the world, a city on a hill giving light for all of a dark world. This is what Jesus says about us. So I leave you now as Josiah comes to lead us in a closing song with these great final words of Elizabeth for Mary that I think are great preparing words for us today. You are blessed because you believed that the Lord would do what he said. Father, Son, and Spirit, may we believe that you will do exactly what you said you'll do. And just like the young man who was with you in person, Jesus, who said, I believe, help me with my unbelief. God, may we believe that you're going to do just exactly what you said. 
And may we prepare our hearts, not just for the shared miracle of Christmas, but also the cost of Christmas. And may we be very glad in it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.